my paper is also on AIDS, but it's not so much about dying, but about living uh, with AIDS. So it's a bit different in that respect. And um, I'm going to look at um, um, part of the global discourse around AIDS and how that plays out um, at the local level. And I'm going to look at one specific concept that's being that's been revived recently with the rollout of antiretroviral treatment, and that's the, the notion of responsabilization of patients. So, because since um, I've started doing my research on HIV and AIDS in Tanzania, and especially in Zanzibar in, in 2004, the situation of HIV-positive people has changed very dramatically. Um, when I arrived in, in Zanzibar in the summer of 2004, there was basically no biomedical treatment available for people in final stage AIDS, apart from some Panadol, sometimes some antifungal creams, and that was it. People were dying terribly, really. Um, and then in 2005, in March 2005, halfway through my research, uh, antiretroviral treatment was rolled out free of charge to everybody who was eligible for treatment. And here you see um, a couple of pictures of these are the first three patients who were put on treatment in Zanzibar. And here is Combo, the first um, patient who receives his first dose of antiretrovirals in the hospital, um, in the central hospital of Zanzibar, Nazimodia. Now, with this large-scale rollout of antiretroviral treatment came debates about how to get people to adhere to the quite difficult treatment regimes. And directly observed therapy, like uh, as is used, for example, in tuberculosis treatment, wasn't going to work with a lifelong treatment like, like this that needed to be taken at least twice a day. So some public health experts have recently started to call for a new kind of contract between healthcare providers and, and clients, which emphasizes the need for highly motivated, responsibilized, and knowledgeable patients in order for antiretroviral treatment to work. But then, what does this call for responsible citizen patients mean? What would be its implications? Um, that's what I've been thinking about a little bit. Now, in the literature, there are conflicting interpretations of the notion of responsible citizenship. By some, it's been viewed as a form of biological self-governance that's promoted under contemporary liberal governments in the West, while some other authors have highlighted its potential for empowerment. For example, Steve, Robinson, or Steve Robbins, most prominently, um, who analyzes the South African AIDS activism in the form of um, the Treatment um, Action Campaign, has argued that social movements like the TAC um, are very powerful examples of avenues for creating the commitments to responsible health behavior. So Robbins argues that merely providing education about people's rights and responsibilities um, are not going to be sufficient to create responsibilized patients, but instead he suggested that it's the very experience of being close to death, both physically and socially, uh, through suffering from AIDS, in combination with the support and the social belonging that AIDS activism can offer, that it's this combination that's transformed HIV-positive people's subjectivities and identities and has therefore produced the conditions for a commitment to responsible lifestyles and an active form of citizenship. 
Now, in contrast to this responsibilized self-empowerment that Robbins has proposed, some social theorists such as Nicholas Rose or Carlos Novas and Peter Miller um, point to the disciplining features of liberal medical governance. As the technology of the self, responsabilization involves techniques to make individuals see social risks, such as illness, for example, not so much as the responsibility of the state, but as lying in the domain of the individual's responsibility. And combined with the assumption that individuals want to be healthy, this means that once they are being responsabilized through education procedures, there wouldn't really be a need for coercive measures to discipline their behaviors because people would start seeing it as their own choice to be and to stay healthy. Now, I think that both these approaches fail to fully explain the lived experiences of HIV-positive people in Tanzania and, I, no doubt, I think, in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa too, who do actually respond rationally and responsibly to their condition, but not necessarily in ways which are understood by the biomedical authorities. But I'm going to start telling you a short story of one of my long-term friends and research participants, Amina, the woman on the right here with her son Faisal and another friend called Telsi. In August 2008, 32-year-old Amina died of AIDS-related complications in Nazimudia Hospital in Zanzibar. She'd been diagnosed HIV-positive in 1990, so she'd been living with the infection for a very long time, largely without major um, symptoms. And she only started to develop full-blown AIDS well after antiretroviral treatment had become available in Zanzibar. And she had seen a lot of her friends recover from being almost near, dead, near death with the help of these new drugs. But when she was advised to start treatment, she refused and she turned to anti-witchcraft medicine instead. Now, in the eyes of her medical doctor, Amina was quite a typical case of an irresponsible, ignorant African patient who was either unwilling or uninformed as to the causes of her suffering and the best way to address it. Now, in these cases, the usual response is either to prov provide more information and more education or just to give up on the patient. But I think we should really try to understand why people like Amina would rather die than use antiretrovirals, and more broadly, what factors influence decision-making around people's search for health and well-being. Because Amina really wasn't unwilling, to the opposite. She was an outspoken, long-term member of the Zanzibar Association for People Living with HIV and AIDS, ZAFA. And she was one of the very few publicly HIV-positive people in Zanzibar. So she spoke in the media about the hardships of life with HIV, um, and she celebrated the rollout of antiretroviral treatment to the islands. For her, the support group, ZAFA, had replaced her largely disintegrated social networks, and it even provided a small income as the group's secretary. But these newly built relationships were subject to conflict and tension too many of which arose out of the competition for very scarce resources. 
because while huge amounts of money is uh, poured into the country for the fight against AIDS, not much of this reaches those suffering from the disease, um, the poorest and most marginalized, which Amina really was a member of. She had no support system left apart from this group, or very little. Now, this uneven dispersal of funding often generates mistrust, which sometimes erupts in conflict, in open conflict and in threats, and that's exactly what happened in Amina's case. When she died, very few people attended her funeral. And during the funeral, I was really struck by the division among formerly very close friends of hers, members of Zafa Plus, of this um, a, um, PLHA support group. Some of the members cried, but there were also a lot of whispers that Amina had brought her demise upon herself, that she didn't deserve better. Some said that she had taken money, and some even wore kangas that read, Ume Luisa, Ume Pata, you got what you've asked for. So Amina's conclusion that the onset of her symptoms, in this case, was not due to an outbreak of AIDS, but actually to the malevolence of a jealous person who was close to her, was actually quite reasonable. And the cause of her action, therefore, included the use of anti-witchcraft medicines and the attempt to make amends with those who were suspected of wishing her ill. I think Amina's story shows the quite limited potential for the transformation of HIV-positive people people's subjectivities into self-empowered citizens, which Steve Robbins had described for South African AIDS activists. And I think it's quite unlikely that this transformation of people's identities who managed to turn this heavy stigma around AIDS into a badge of pride, I think that it's quite unlikely that this will take place at a large scale in Tanzania and probably also in other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. To the opposite, in the ongoing presence of very high levels of AIDS-related stigma, many see antiretroviral treatment as an opportunity to hide their HIV status in order to avoid the stigma. And as we've seen from the case study, AIDS activism here hasn't really been able to, to mobilize very widespread solidarity or public support in order to provide an empowering, supportive environment. Rather, AIDS activism here is characterized by relations of patronage and a very strong donor dependency that frequently led to factionalism and infighting. Also, when we look at the biomedical system, it's very hierarchical in Tanzania, and medical professionals usually carefully guard their expert knowledge. In general, people's relationships with the state and its institutions is characterized by an expectation of obedience rather than an active engagement and, and partnership in decision-making. Patients are very often regarded as ignorant and irrational who need to be educated and disciplined through counseling and education sessions that constantly repeat standard scripts of managing their conditions through the mantra of living positively which includes embracing their HIV-positive identity, following the doctor's advice, and striving to be morally good person in persons in general who neither drink nor smoke, nor engage in illicit sex, who are friendly to others, and who help fellow sufferers through home-based care and peer counseling. 
The goal is to create obedient patients who quite uncritically submit to whichever treatment is administered. And in the pictures you can see some um, examples of the way that this disciplining and education takes place in the clinic setting this time where there is a um, treatment counselling session over there for the patient um, on the left and the treatment buddy on the right and then people are giving these uh, forms that they have to fill in and produce at their next clinic appointment uh, in order to pick up the new medication where it's monitored whether they've actually taking, uh, taken their drugs. So it's a form of um, self-monitoring um, and, and providing proof. Patients, in turn, are often far from scientifically knowledgeable, empowered, and rights-bearing uh, partners in their healthcare. Nor do they, well, most of them, no, uh, don't really expect to play a very active role in their interaction, interactions with the healthcare system. And patients are also <coughs> very acutely aware of their dependence on the goodwill of doctors and nurses, which has been heightened by the provision of free antiretroviral treatment. This dependency has stifled the emergence of active patients and silenced the voice of activists. Many of my informants recognize the potential danger of engaging in confrontational forms of activism. For example, a female leader of a support group in Dar es Salaam said, you're not, really, you're not in danger of being beaten or arrested, but the danger is to be despised, kuchukiwa. The hospital staff are the ones who will have to care for you when you get sick, and they'll just put you on tranquilizers and, and watch you die if you've been um, confrontational with them before. And several research participants reported fears that the doctors would keep the antiretrovirals from them if they appeared too critical or if they didn't follow the authorities' advice. Um, they said, they'll just pretend that they run out of drugs and send you home, so what are you going to do? You can't prove that they actually have the, the medications in stock. Apart from a lack of supportive environment and the, the room or space for creating a partnership kind of um, situation in administering healthcare, I think Amina's story also raises some important questions about the production of knowledge and truth, about the definition of expertise and a dominant discourse. And of course, ultimately, these are questions about power. Who defines where HIV comes from? What the real causes of a person's suffering and therefore the best treatments and strategies for prevention are? Now, at the global level of development programs and health finance instruments, these definitions have been framed within the parameters of scientific rationality. They focus on substances that circulate within and between individuals' bodies, on barrier methods, and on pharmaceutical treatments. And these form the basis of a hegemonic definition of biomedical responsibility that's designed by experts at the global level to be internalized by local patients and promoted through large-scale education campaigns and voluntary and often compulsory instruction sessions within institutional settings, including schools, clinics, and hospitals. So while Robbins highlights the transformations of AIDS activist subjectivities, ultimately the framework for the process of responsabilization is set externally 
through scientific reasoning and through biomedical experts. Therefore, while responsabilization can be viewed as an empowering experience for some, the limits for this active citizenship lie within the borders of scientific rationality and the ultimate value of biological life, for which social life, or people's livelihoods, may need to be sacrificed. Empowerment here means being empowered to act according to biomedical recommendations, and responsibility is conflated with biological rationality, which thus adds a moral dimension to the way that people's actions are being perceived. Now, in this slide, the notion of responsibilized HIV-positive citizens reminds us of earlier debates around the disciplinary nature of risk and approaches to risk management, which originate from mathematics and game theory. Risk presumes that it's possible to measure and to avoid hazards, and responsible behavior in many ways is the opposite of risky behavior. And recognizing risk and responsibilization as part of what Foucault called governmentality, a form of self-government where avoiding risk becomes a moral enterprise that is related to notions of self-control and self-knowledge, I think can provide quite valuable insights into the ways that existing power structures are maintained. Presented as a practice of freedom that gives the individual the opportunity to choose how to conduct their lives, can barely conceal that this is a form of shifting responsibility onto the individual, which coincides with similar neoliberal reforms in other realms of healthcare, for example, um, the introduction of cost-sharing models um, and the increasing use of volunteers for home-based care uh, programs. Moreover, biomedical approaches to AIDS assume that the matter of utmost importance for everybody must be to contain and manage the virus, which requires the privileging of biomedical rationalities over all other forms of rationalities. And this view privileges physical life over social lives. It privileges the, the idea of saving lives uh, over saving people's livelihoods. But individuals are really not always guided just by self-interest and forces that are under their own control. Very often people's decision-making in the realm of AIDS, as in other realms, is shaped by their socio-economic and political environment or by rules that govern moral behavior. For example, Nima, a 30-year-old woman from Dar es Salaam who is on antiretrovirals, she's very aware of a biomedical, bi biomedically responsible lifestyle. She knows what it means. She's been trained and educated. She says she wants to be healthy, but then she's a single mother of three. She's been abandoned by her husband, as actually most of the female um, uh, HIV-positive people I've been working with have experienced. So she starts to work in a bar, and she starts to sell sex. Now, Nima was very aware of the fact that she shouldn't really work, be working in the sex industry because she could infect others. And indeed, she hadn't disclosed her HIV status to anybody. She didn't really feel it was her responsibility to protect her customers from infection. After all, they played by far the more powerful part in their relation. She didn't particularly like the job. She felt it made her feel very tired. 
But at the same time, she was also really proud of the fact that she could provide for her family and that she didn't have to go and beg relatives as so many other of her friends had to do. She took on the responsibility of caring for her fa family at really very great sacrifice to herself. And even in health terms, she thought that the work was actually quite helpful because worrying is regarded as a major reason for deteriorating health. So by taking away the worries about immediate survival, Neymar felt that her job helped her to become healthier as well. So the collective backdrop of life in Tanzania is a really pervasive sense of uncertainty. Uncertainty about daily survival, about the causes of the suffering that's taken hold of the country, and about the best ways to protect oneself and one's loved ones from it. HIV here is only one among a large variety of threats that people have to face, and biomedicine is only one among several models of explaining illness and establishing the right course for treatment. And many of my informants have reported a really great sense of powerlessness when they talked about AIDS and expressed their way of facing the threat by falling back on concepts of fate and trust in divine power. And I think Giddens' thoughts on the link between risk and trust can be quite useful here. Trust is a really central concept in conceptualizing and talking about AIDS in Tanzania, and Giddens' notion of trust as a leap of faith is quite similarly used by people in Tanzania. And that's a connection, as Janet Boudreau pointed out, that is even expressed at the semantic level. The Swahili term for trust, waminifu, derives from the word for faith, imani. In the context of medical pluralism and contra contradicting messages about AIDS, people have to choose which one they trust in most. And this is not a matter of absolute certainty. In the realm of sexual encounters, similarly, the closer and more intimate a relation becomes, the more the partners operate on, in terms of hopes and aspirations on the basis of the trust that they have in each other. In case of non-marital sexual relationships in Zanzibar, for example, condoms are sometimes used during the first two or three sexual encounters. But after that, usually, condom use is abandoned, and people say, I've already got used to you, why don't you trust me now? Which implies that the relationship has reached a new level of mutual trust that's connected to the hope of being exclusive which, of course, is not an African phenomenon only. I mean, I've seen in, in my generation that um, dropping condom use, going for STD um, testing, is also a sign of showing that the relationship is going forward and there is more trust involved. Now, in Tanzania and in, in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa, as you may probably well know, uh, a big problem is that condom use actually engenders distrust, and especially within marital or long-term relationships, where condoms are seen to imply unfaithfulness and suspicion. But at the same time, men have started to question their sense of trust in and thus control over their wives and daughters. And women, too, are realizing that sexual relations will have to change if they and their children are to survive. And in this way, maybe, as Beck and Giddens have pointed out, risk can be an equalizing and unifying factor, maybe. But opposed to the negotiations around trust, trust, notions of risk and responsabilization, 
presupposes, presuppose a sense of certainty. They assume the existence of an ultimate truth to be converted into a right set of behaviors. But Didier Fassin has demonstrated in his analysis of South African, the South African government's past endorsement of AIDS dissident theories that biomedical knowledge itself is not quite as immutable and certain as it is often portrayed to patients. As scientific knowledge evolves, old insights are proven wrong and discarded. They are replaced by new findings that are sometimes contrary to those that had been declared previously. And in the process of translating new scientific findings into truths that are put out to the public arena, very complex research results are being simplified, cautious tendencies are asserted as certainties, and past stances are often blocked out of the biomedical establishment's memories, but they're not forgotten by the public. And following Fassin, I would argue that this absence of biomedicine's memory of its past mistakes and revisions of opinion has created a really big sense of uncertainty about the reliability of scientific information and combines with a large array of conspiracy theories about the hidden motives behind medical interventions. The controversies around the potential harm and benefits of nevirapin to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV in South Africa are a prime example here. And more recently, um, education of condoms is being watered down by latest study that show that it might actually be safe to drop condom use for couples who are on antiretrovirals where both partners' viral levels are undetectable. So in this sense, there are very few clear messages in the field of AIDS, few unequivocal agreements, and certainly no clearly drawn enemy lines. Uncertainty is what pervades, both within the medical realm and within the wider discourses about HIV and AIDS. And in Tanzania, biomedical explanations of AIDS coexist alongside a whole range of other explanations that attribute the symptoms to witchcraft, ritual pollution, or divine retribution for immorality, for example, all with very different consequences for prevention and treatment strategies. So what do we miss if we focus on the concept of responsabilization in the management of AIDS? I think we miss recognizing the fact that people actually do try to act responsibly and make informed decisions but they, that they do this by taking into account not only their biological, but also their social, cultural, and economic context. The danger of the concept of responsibilized citizens by its bias towards biomedically responsible behavior is that it once more tends to overlook social forms of responsibility and, I think, places an unduly burden on people who are barely able to survive and I think it also again underlines quite persistent ideas about Africans as ignorant and irrational and absolves health intervention planners and policymakers when interventions don't work. In countries where the health system in general is receding and can't deliver appropriate care, as in the case of Tanzania, which has suffered from very harsh neoliberal sentences under structural adjustment, it also means that these patients will have to take on the brunt of caring for themselves and for others. 
Already the majority of home-based care is provided by volunteers and despite a legal entitlement to free treatment for HIV positive people, patients still very often have to buy their medications for opportunistic infections in private sector pharmacies. The lack of a state benefit system means that the responsibility for finding the means for survival lies with the patient and his or her family, whose savings have already, uh, often already been um, depleted by the patient's previous um, illness. The responsabilization concept contains the danger that new patterns of exclusion are created for those who can't easily slip into the notion of therapeutic partnership as patients who are unable or judged unlikely to stick to a contract that frames treatment are deemed unworthy of and may be denied access of the treatment, as, for example, Jao Biel has described for HIV-positive um, substance abusers in Brazil. Instead, I would propose in this paper to focus our attention on understanding the ways that people struggle to find meaning in the suffering they're faced with and to make sense of the array of competing messages around AIDS in their quest for some sense of security, not certainty, but security at least. And I think we need to acknowledge the responsibility that people already carry and constantly negotiate in their daily life and turn our attention to the ways people find some space for agency within the constraints of structural forces.